Hi guys. Good morning to all of you. Uh, welcome to not only our time of worship, but our discussion of God's Word. Uh, if you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, you might need to be brought up to speed. Uh, we are discussing the issue of the gospel, which is a word that gets thrown around a lot, and not everybody knows exactly what is meant by it. And we're specifically focusing on a discussion of the gospel as it is presented in the book of Romans. And if you're not somebody who's incredibly familiar with the book of Romans, I strongly encourage you, in your Bible this week, just start on page one in the book of Romans and read through the whole book during the week. Spend some time with God. Get his word into your heart because we're going to be in this book for the next several weeks. And we're going to be looking at what is the good news that everybody keeps talking about. So welcome to our discussion on the good news according to the book of Romans. So far, we haven't heard much good news, have we? Um, <laughs> in fact, it has been made abundantly clear from Romans chapter 1 that sometimes for the good news to be really good, it has to be preceded by some bad news that's really bad. Uh, when I was a kid, I can remember that from time to time, you know, we would get an invitation as a family to go to somebody else's home for dinner, and I'd always have to sit through this lecture from my mom about no matter what they serve you, you're not going to complain, you're going to eat it, you're going to smile, it'll be fine, it will not kill you, and you will eat everything that is served to you without complaint. And I heard that over and over again whenever we would go to someone's house, and without fail, they would put a plate in front of me that was some sort of mystery meat, you know, covered with some kind of gravy or sauce that smelled like it had been there for a few weeks and you know always always without question Brussels sprouts <laughs> right? and, and, and I would sit there and try to choke it down and try to fight back the tears as I'm managing to eat this food that I was convinced was so terrible um, and every now and then, my mom would shoot me that look that God gives moms the moment they become moms. And that look that says, you better not forget what I told you. You're going to eat it. I don't want to hear you complaining. Just eat the food. And finally, finally, after however long it was, I would get through the food. The, the plate would be empty. And then I would hear the three greatest words in the English language. Save your fork. Because <laughs> that means dessert's coming, right? And after the, after the Brussels sprouts were all cleaned off the plate, then there would be a new plate placed in front of me and it would be like chocolate cake, right? And I'm telling you, chocolate cakes taste ten times better if you have just suffered through a plate of Brussels sprouts. <laughs> right? And so... Um, Paul's approach in the book of Romans to presenting the chocolate cake is that he begins with the Brussels sprouts. We have to first sort of grapple with the stuff that is frankly hard to swallow. If you, if you, if you want to just recap real quick, Romans 1, what did we see? Basically, we saw Paul saying, hey, guess what? The world is filled with depraved people, and those depraved people find themselves under the wrath of God. 
And, and remember, this is a letter written to the Christians in Rome. It would be uh, read publicly when the church would gather, right? It would be like you came to worship this morning and I said, hey guys, we got a letter from an apostle. So we're going to scrap what we we're planning to do. And I'm going to read you the scroll that this letter came on and you're going to hear it. And they would sit through. You think my sermons are long. <laughs> they would sit through the reading of the entire book of Romans and listen to everything that Paul said and sit on the edge of their seats because they were hearing the word of God. And so hearing the word of God, they were listening and they're hearing about all these depraved people and this list of awful things that they do and how they're under the wrath of God. And I can just imagine being one of these religious folks sitting in that audience for the first time, listening to the reading going on. And uh, he starts saying all of these evil people who rebel against God are under condemnation and they have no way to help themselves because God has given them over. It says three times in Romans 1. He gave them over, he gave them over, he gave them over to the consequences of their own sinful choices and now that consequence is the wrath of God. And you can just imagine those religious folks sort of smiling on the inside where they're hearing this because finally those bad people are going to get what they have coming, right? And it reminds me of a story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke. So I know some of you already went to Romans. Ha ha, I fooled you. Go to Luke chapter 18. And uh, the book of Luke is in your New Testament. Right at the beginning of the New Testament, you have four big books that are guys' names. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You want to go to Luke and turn to chapter 18. And let me just get you caught up. Jesus is about to head back into Jerusalem for the last time. And he's already said to his disciples, hey, guess what? When we get to Jerusalem, they're going to take me into custody and they're going to kill me. And the disciples said, well, I got an idea. Let's not go to Jerusalem. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to let them do this to me. We're on our way to Jerusalem. And I can imagine the disciples going, okay, um, if we're going to go to Jerusalem, and we know everybody's mad at Jesus, and they're all looking for him, maybe Jesus don't turn over any tables this time, right? Maybe don't make a scene. Maybe don't make everybody mad. And Jesus says, you know what? I'm on my way because this is the Father's will for me. And so that's where we pick it up in chapter 18 of the book of Luke. And we're going to start at verse 9. I want you to follow along as I read. It says, and he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Here's Jesus' story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. 
I love Jesus, the storyteller. Um, I, I think in some ways Jesus was the M. Night Shyamalan of his day. His, his stories would be going a certain way and you sort of knew where they were going and you knew where they were going to end and there would be this twist at the end that would leave everybody shocked, right? So he's going along and he's telling them a story that makes perfect sense to them, very familiar to them. Hey, you go to the temple to pray. It's a worship service. It's like coming to church on a Sunday. Everybody is there. And uh, one of the Pharisees walks in. Now, I know that most of you know this, but let me just give you a picture. The Pharisees were the religious elite of their day. They were the holiest people in Israel. They were the ones that everyone looked up to. To even become a Pharisee was such a long and arduous process. Do you know that those Pharisees, by the time they were 12 years old, had memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. You're like, well, that's no big deal. Genesis, Exodus. No, no, the whole thing. Every word of the books of Moses, they had to memorize by the time they were 12 or they wouldn't graduate to the next level. And when they got to the next level, they had to memorize the prophets. And when they got to the next level, they had to memorize the Mishnah and the Talmud. And these guys were so focused on their religion. They were so focused on God and they wore the fancy religious clothes and they followed all the rules. In fact, when there wasn't enough rules, they wrote new rules. They were religious elite people and all of the Jews looked up to them and said, that's a different class of person. I'm not like that. So here's this Pharisee who comes in and he begins to pray. I'm always fascinated when I read this that it says there um, in uh, verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. Now, when you read it in Greek, it's really hard to know whether the word to is the right word there. It's either he was praying to himself, which makes perfect sense for a Pharisee who was often seen on the street corners praying out loud just so that people would see him praying and be impressed with him. But it it also could be that the preposition there should be translated about. He was praying this about himself, which also makes perfect sense. Either way, whether he's praying to himself or praying about himself, guess who's not the focus of his prayer? God. Right? So he's praying about himself. And here's what he says. I'm sure you guys all pray like this. He said, God, I'm so thankful to you. That's a good way to start a prayer. I'm so thankful to you. Oh, really? Why are you thankful? I'm thankful that I'm not like these people. (laughs) Is this how you pray when you uh, gather in your grace group? (laughs) Oh, dear Lord, thank you, you know, that I'm such a good husband. I have such a, a good marriage, you know, not like... Dave and Marge, you know? Is that how you pray? That's how he's praying. I'm so glad that I'm not like that guy or that guy or that guy or that guy. And specifically, God, I don't even know who let this tax collector in here, but I'm so glad I'm not like him. The focus of his prayer is not, oh God, you are good. It's, oh God, ain't I good? And that's his prayer. And and then Jesus says, but let's talk about this tax collector. Now, you guys know about tax collectors. I don't have to tell you this. This is universal in every culture in the world. Everyone hates tax collectors, right? Don't you love April 15th? Isn't that what you look forward to? Go, man, I hope I get to pay more taxes this year. 
Well, in our culture, nobody likes the tax collector. And in this culture, nobody liked the tax collectors either. And it was much worse for them. Because the Jews were under the rule of the Roman Empire and they were abused by the Romans and they had had everything taken away from them. And on top of that, what the Romans did was they actually hired Jewish people to be from among their own people, go door to door and collect taxes. Now, let's just use uh, numbers that are familiar to us. Let's say that your tax bill for the year was going to be $5,000. Well, uh, around whatever their version of April 15th was... Somebody knocked on your door, and it was a tax collector. And he said, I'm here not to collect the $5,000, but to get fifteen grand." And whatever he could make above what the Romans required was his commission. So not only was he committing fraud and basically robbery to these people, but he was a traitor against his own nation because he was collecting taxes to support the Roman government that was oppressing them. So there was nobody that was less respected in all of the culture of Israel than the tax collector. He, everybody knew he was a bad guy. He was a complete sellout. So the Pharisee is thankful that he's not like the tax collector. And Jesus' story unfolds, and the audience knows that there is a huge, massive difference between a Pharisee and a tax collector. What they don't know is what that difference is. Jesus says, only one of these men is justified before God. And the crowd is thinking, well, yeah, obviously the Pharisee is justified before God and not the tax collector. And then Jesus does his twist and goes, it's the tax collector. It's the tax collector who was made right before God. Now, now put yourself in the audience that's hearing this story for the first time. What do you mean? That doesn't make any sense at all. Um, you know, the, the Pharisee should be, the, he's the... He's the religious superstar. He, he's the one that follows all the rules. He's the one that all of us looked up to. And Jesus says, yeah, that guy, not right in the eyes of God. And the people are thinking, he's the best we have. And Jesus is thinking, yeah, that's kind of the point. That even the best that we have to offer the most religious, the one who keeps the most rules, the one who follows all the commandments, even that guy falls incredibly short and is not justified by his own good works. Everyone who exalts himself, Jesus says, will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. And you can just imagine everybody's in shock. They're scratching their heads and going, what's going on here? So I have a question for you. Can you see yourself in the mirror of God's word? You see your reflection when we hear about this Pharisee or when we hear about this tax collector? Because I do. Don't we all have a tendency to want to judge ourselves by comparison to other people, especially if we get to pick the people we judge ourselves against? Um, we can all find our version of that tax collector. 
somebody who everyone would agree is more messed up than me. And we want God to grade me based on a comparison to him. When I was in college, uh, I did what a lot of college students did. I, I took all the fun classes at the beginning, and then, and then when it was time to graduate, I had to shove all these hard classes in at the end, and I wasn't prepared for them. And, and it came to my last semester, and there was a class I had put off and put off and put off because I did not want to take it, but now I wasn't graduating unless I took it, and the class was physics. And I had to take it that last uh, semester, and the only time it was offered that last semester was Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 7 a.m. Now, don't you think it should be illegal to have college students do anything at 7 a.m.? And, and so now I have a class I don't want to take, and it's at 7 a.m., and I go in the first day, and um, it is being taught by a guy who has never taught before, He's a laid-off aerospace engineer. There were a lot of those in the early 80s when I was in college. And he's teaching physics. He doesn't want to be there. We don't want to be there. And here's his strategy. Now, this will date me a little bit, right? Um, he would turn off the lights in the room. Great idea at 7 a.m. Turn off the lights in the room. Turn on the overhead projector. And, and that light would shine up here. Then he would turn his back to us and write on the projector, word for word, everything he was saying. E equals MC squared. And that went on for an hour and a half every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 7 to 8.30. Or at least I heard it did. <laughs> Because what I did was I got together with a bunch of the other students and said, hey, there's no way we're coming to this class every, every, every other day, right? No, no, we're not. Okay, let's make a deal. You come on Mondays, you come on Wednesdays, you come on Fridays. We'll share the notes and we'll get through this. That's what we did. So I would go once a week, take my notes, share with my group, and I learned absolutely nothing about physics. It's the worst I've ever done in any class. I think by the end of the year, I was somewhere around 55, 60%. And then I got the good news. He's grading on a curve. <laughs> oh, glory to God in the highest. He's grading on a curve. You know what I got? A B plus. <laughs> the whole class failed. And the only way he was going to keep his job is if his whole class didn't fail, so he decided to grade on a curve. And, and I was thinking about that when I was reading this passage going, man, I, I so want God to grade on a curve. It would just be so great when I, when I look at who I am and I know the ways that I fail and I let God down. Wouldn't it just be great if I could pick seven or eight people and go, okay, God, this is going to be my group. Measure me against them. The thing is, that's not how it works. I'm sure Paul's original audience was thinking, um, it makes no sense. All these people, they're, they're all under the wrath of God. I get that part. But then when we get to chapter two, it changes. Because he closed chapter one of Romans with a list, right, of unrighteous behaviors that are unacceptable. And he used words like wicked, 
evil, deceitful, murder, adultery. He's like, that's why everybody's under the wrath of God. It's because we choose to live these evil lives. And he says that's why everybody is without excuse, all of these irreligious people with their sinful behavior. And his original audience must have been thinking like the Pharisee in Jesus' story. Boy, am I glad I'm not like that. But then we get to Romans chapter 2. So now's the time to go to Romans. We, we, we've gotten through chapter 1. We're almost done with our Brussels sprouts. We're thinking, okay, maybe the cake's coming. But, oh, no, no, don't get ahead of yourself. Look at chapter 2 of Romans, beginning in verses 1 through 5. Therefore, after all of that, therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment... For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Remember what it says in chapter 1. The wrath of God is revealed against all those bad people. You know, those bad people, the ones uh, who are caught up in immoral lifestyle, the ones whose temptations are different than your temptations, and therefore their sins are different than your sins. The ones you can look at and look down upon and go, obviously, they're failing the class. Those people are under the wrath of God. And then the chapter ends with God expanding the list to those uh, who are arrogant, to, to those who don't show mercy, to, to those who are unloving toward others, to those who gossip and talk behind people's back, to those who are envious, to those who, God forbid, disobey their parents. He puts this list together and goes, oh yeah, these people, they're on the list too. You see the problem? The problem is what it says in chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. That's why chapter 2 starts the way it does. We are all in the same boat. And therefore, when we pass judgment on people and exclude them from the grace of God, we're just as guilty as they are. Look again at chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. You go, but I, I don't. I don't practice the same things. He's thinking about murderers and adulterers and all these. I, I, you know, that's, those are the bad guys. But when I look at the rest of the list, if you tell me you don't see yourself in the bottom part of the list, I'd say you're a liar. And so he says, hey, Doug, you're without excuse. 
You're without excuse. I'm without excuse when I judge. Because all sin separates us from God. And therefore, if there is sin in my life, I'm adding my judgmentalism to the long list of sins that are in my life, which puts me in the same category as these other people who are committing sins I would never dream of committing because I'm not as bad as they are. And he goes, oh, you're kidding yourself. You, Doug, are without excuse. See, the biggest mistake we can make is that when it comes to holiness, we compare ourselves to other people when we should be comparing ourselves to the holiness of God. Right. Let, me, let me try to show you how this works. We're going to do a little test here. This is my art project for this week. Which one of these lines is straight? Neither one. Neither one? How do you know? How do you know neither of these lines is straight? Compared to the edge of the paper. Compared to the edge of the paper, which is a? Line. Straight line. You know that neither of these lines is straight because you know what a straight line is, right? And when you know what a straight line is, you can then compare these other lines to the straight line and realize there's something not straight about these lines. Now, which of these two top lines is more jagged? The top one, right? So let's just, um, he's not here to defend himself. Let's, uh, let's put a name on the top one. Let's make this Adolf Hitler. Now, if you're a fan of Hitler, <laughs> if you're a fan of Hitler, this line's you, okay? So, <laughs> so this line is Adolf Hitler, okay? This line is Mother Teresa. Also not straight. And we can tell because we know what a straight line is. And in chapter one, do you remember what he told us about this? He said that God has already made you aware of him, of his divine attributes, of who he is, by putting it in your heart and writing it all over creation. You know what a straight line is. There's something called natural law. You don't need to be taught that some things are just wrong in every culture, in every time, in every situation. You know this already because you're human, because it's written on your heart. You have a sense of what a straight line is. This may be Hitler, which is a crooked line. This is Mother Teresa, which is a crooked line. And guess what? Neither one of them is straight. And you may relate much more to Mother Teresa, or all kidding aside, you may relate much more to this top line. This may be how you see yourself. This may be how you think of your, your moral um, decency. You may go, oh, if you only knew, man, my life is a jagged line. It's been a jagged line for a long time. Or maybe you'll go, you know what, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not perfect, but, you know, I've, I've, I've had a pretty good life. You know what, you're not? You're not a straight line. And that's what God is trying to get through to us here in Romans chapter 1. There has only ever been one man who has lived his life on a straight line, and his name is 
Jesus. And I don't care how nice you are. And I don't care how friendly you are, how religious you are. Compared to God, you don't measure up. Just like it says in verse 2, we understand that God's judgment rightly falls on certain other people because of their sin. But we somehow think we deserve a passing grade. Verse 3 says that the judgment of God is deserved by religious people too, just as much as it is deserved by irreligious people. Don't think that you can escape the wrath of God by being good. You will never measure up to God's standard of holiness. Now, I'm not pointing out any one person here. I'm not saying that you're particularly bad. What I'm saying is you're human. And because you're human, this describes you. You are not the straight line. Your line is some degree of jaggedness. And God, who is a straight line, knows the difference. You don't get to compare yourself to Hitler or Mussolini or, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer or whoever it is that you would get a passing grade compared to. And look at verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Don't think lightly of God's kindness and tolerance and patience. You know why? They're your only hope. It's God's kindness. It's God's tolerance. It's God's patience that gives you any hope whatsoever. It says it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. But there is some good news in all of this. Guess what the Bible tells us about God? He is kind. He is patient. He is tolerant. He does love us. So let's just call it what it is. We have gotten ourselves into a mess. We're going to see this again and again in Romans. It says, all of us are dead in our trespasses and sins, but God is rich in mercy. We're all dead in our trespasses and sins, but God is rich in mercy. His kindness paves the way to our repentance. Oh, we may think we're okay because we go to the right church or we believe the right doctrines or we do a bunch of religious stuff or we're very altruistic and we help little ladies across the street and all of that. But guess what? That's not how it works. Jew or Gentile, Paul says in Romans chapter 2. We might say Presbyterian or Catholic, American or Iraqi, man, woman, or child, good guy with a white hat, bad guy with a black hat. It doesn't make any difference. We are all in the same boat. Turn the page to chapter 3 of Romans and skip down to a very famous verse in verse 23. Romans 3.23, here's what it says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Underline all, highlight glory of God. The standard is the straight line. The standard is God's glorious holiness. None of us reaches that standard. That's why we underline the word all. All have sinned and we all fall short. 
We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And you know what a dead man can do to bring himself back to life? Absolutely nothing. He's dead. Friends, don't rely on being a good person in order to gain favor with God. We're all utterly dependent on his grace and his kindness and his mercy that calls us to repentance. And it's in that repentant response to God's gracious, amazing calling and only because of that grace that we can ever hope to find true life. So, whoever you are, we have to come face to face with the bad news. We are all dead in our sins and our only hope is the grace and mercy of God. Your line is not straight enough and it never will be on your own efforts. We're all like the tax collector in Jesus' story. We have no rightful claim on the mercy of God. He shouldn't have even been there in the worship house that day. Given all the sin in his life, all we can do is beat our breasts and cry out to God and go, oh God, don't kill me now. Oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Some of us, honestly, all kidding aside, some of you, if you had to draw a line representing your life to this point, that line would be very jagged. Some of you have been pretty much a good kid. Follow the rules. Nice to your parents. Stay out of jail. All that stuff. Your line might look like this. Your line might look like this. Some of us need to repent of our immorality and wickedness before a holy God. Some of us need to repent because we love to sit in judgment of others. When in fact our own sin, sin separates us from only God. But the good news is that God is loving, that God is kind, that God is merciful, that God is gracious, that God is forgiving. And just as the line that represents your life will never be so straight that God will accept you on the merits of your good behavior, it's equally true that your line will never be so jagged as to separate you from the reach of the grace of God. Amen. The bad news is that all of us are lost in our sin. Even the religious folks who follow so many rules. And that news is hard to hear. It's hard to preach. It's so tempting to just make a little quick mention of the fact that, you know what, uh, we all need a Savior. Now let's move on to the verses that talk about God's wonderful free gift to us. But guys, I think that, that me and my colleagues in the pulpit over the years in churches across America have been too often guilty of saying people like to hear the good news so we're gonna skip the bad news because that's what fills the room. But if you fill the room with people who never hear the actual gospel, they never understand that it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance in the first place. It's hard to hear this stuff. Last week, this week, this is the Brussels sprouts. 
Hard to take. I know some of you are like, I like Brussels sprouts. (laughs) You're just weird. (laughs) If you like Brussels sprouts, just go with my analogy. They're hard for me to swallow. Right? So, so if it's hard for you to swallow the things that we're hearing in Romans 1 and Romans 2, a welcome to the club. This is the Brussels sprouts. The bad news is hard to swallow, but that doesn't make it any less true. But the story doesn't end with the Brussels sprouts. Because as we struggle... I'm going to press this analogy as far as I can. As we struggle to digest the bad news of Romans 1 and 2, um, there's a distant voice that we can hear if we, if we stop arguing long enough to get quiet. Can you hear it? Can you hear what he's saying? Save your fork. It's the voice of God from heaven. Save your fork. The good news is coming. The chocolate cake is on its way. And now that we've swallowed the hard stuff, the sweetness of the good news is even sweeter by comparison. The good news is coming as we continue our trek through the book of Romans. But guys, we will never understand the value of the good news. We will never receive the value of the good news until we have come face to face with the truth of the bad news. And the truth of the bad news is, I don't care how religious you are or how irreligious you are. I don't care if you were raised in the church or if you were raised in paganism. I don't care if you're a Muslim or a Jew or a Jehovah's Witness or a Baptist. I don't care if you're rich or poor. I don't care if you're a Republican or a Democrat. I don't care. You need Jesus. That's the bad news. The good news is he sees your need and he meets your need. What a mighty God we serve.